the, the sin, it, it's just, it's interesting because sin sometimes looks like murder. Sometimes it looks like rape. Sometimes it looks like child molestation, but sometimes it looks like gossip. Sometimes it looks like lying. Sometimes uh, it looks like stealing. Sometimes it looks like lust. It, knowing what to do with sin should be easy, but I think we really struggle with it. We don't want to notice it in our own lives. We just kind of want to glaze over it. We want to we ignore it because of what happens when we expose it. We see it in other people's lives, but we don't want to confront it because we might be viewed as judgmental. We might be called unaccepting, and we don't want to do that. We don't know what to do with sin. We, we really don't. Maybe we do here, but we don't in our actions know what to do with sin. But we all experience it. We've all felt it. We've all done it. We've all been complicit in it. And the reactions that happen when we sin and when we talk about sin, when we hide sin, when we ignore sin, they're all different. Uh, I remember when I was really young, my dad was hanging out with his brother, my uncle, because uh, that's the way families work. And uh, his, uh, his son, Cody, came sprinting up to them. Uh, and his son, Cody was probably five years old, and he had a younger brother, Wesley, who was maybe three or four years old. And Cody comes sprinting up. I mean, as fast as he can, he's out of breath. He's sprinting up, and he's, he says, Dad, Dad, I threw a rock, and Wesley stepped in front of it, and the rock had bleed in it. And just to translate what's going on here is Cody was brilliant. He already knew exactly what to do with sin. Right? He's like, Dad, I'm just I'm throwing some rocks, just hanging out, minding my own business. And then Wesley, Wesley, his fault, walks in front of a rock that I was already throwing in a certain direction. And he just, he stepped in front of it. What was I supposed to do? It, was already, it already left my hand. And then this particular rock that I had thrown had bleed in it. It, was, right? it wasn't my fault and it wasn't that big a deal. Already, right at the beginning, you know, age of five, he knew what to do with his sin. It was to, you know, say it wasn't really my fault. It really wasn't that big a deal. You know, my brother and I, uh, we had a similar experience. We had two rules, uh, unwritten rules in our brotherhood. One was that you don't hit in the face because people can see the results of that. And then you don't tattle. Anything else was, was okay, but you don't hit in the face and you don't tattle. And so one time my brother threw a rock at me and he hit me. And like a man, I cried uh, and, and, and screamed at him and said, I'm going to tell. Now I wasn't going to tell because you didn't do that. But I just wanted to scare him a little bit because he hit me with a rock, right? He deserved it. And so I said, I'm going to tell. And then Cooper goes, no, I'm going to tell. And then he ran and told on himself, which was, which was great. It was great. I mean, what I wanted to happen. Um, because he realized that if I told, it, the reaction would be, differently, it would be different than if he told. I mean, this is kind of the way that we think as kids. We grow up. Um, you know, when our sin is exposed, it's, it's hard to deal with. I remember my dad, he used to make us work out because he really wanted us to be able to succeed. Not for him, he was fine, but he really wanted us to be able to feel confident in, in the sports that we wanted to play. And so we were young and we were having to work out. We hated it. So we would not do it and then we'd lie about it. And my dad wanted to expose this in us. And so one thing that we needed to do every day was to do chin-ups or pull-ups or I don't know which, you know, which grip it is, but those things where you're pulling yourself above a bar, okay? And so outside our house on the awning, there was this big old pole that held the awning to our house. And that's where we'd do our chin-ups. 
And my dad knew we weren't doing them, but we were saying we were. So one day he, he, uh, he came to my brother and I'm telling a story about him because my sin is a little bit too personal to talk about. So I'm gonna talk about my brother's sin. <laughs> and he came to my brother and he says, hey, did you do your chin-ups? And Cooper said, yeah, of course I did. And my dad said, that's great, man. I'd, I'd love to see you do one. I'm just so proud of you. Um, was he lying in that point? I don't know. Anyway, nonetheless, he says, so let's go out and do them. And so my brother went out there and my dad had put Crisco on the bar because um, he knew. And so my brother, no clue, jumps up there, grabs the bar and slips off. And he's like, uh-oh, I've been caught. You know, I mean, it's, it's this thing that we experience as kids and then also as adults. But as kids, it's kind of funny to look back on and you think, oh, it's no big deal. It's, you know, whatever. But I remember one time I was in college. I was in Greek class. Uh, which was the only class that I could honestly answer the teacher and say, I have no idea, it's Greek to me, and just be, then it was just true, right? And so, so in Greek class, I'm hanging out, and it was a smaller class. I felt like, I, I believed that I had a good relationship with my professor, that we weren't quite equals, but we were close to friends. And so we would interact during class, all of us would. Uh, and then one time, he gave me some sort of assignment, or he said something that was difficult, something that I didn't like, uh, that I was going to have to do, and I used a word that, at the time, I, I, I don't think that I thought it was offensive, uh, and I know that my peers didn't think it was offensive, it was just kind of a normal word in our vernacular, but in his day and age, in his generation, this was a very offensive word, it was the word S-U-C-K-S, and so I said that, and he said, get out of my class. And, and I, I was like, what? He said, get out of my class right now. Get your things, get out of my class. And I was so humiliated in front of my peers. I began to burn with anger. I was not a fan of that person. I left and it took me a few hours to, to I mean, really took me a few hours to calm down from the emotional state that I was in. And I realized that it was more important for me to graduate college than to, you know, express my anger to, towards him. So I just went and I apologized and he told me what was going on. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to use that word anymore. Uh, and, and it was interesting, though, when my sin was confronted, I mean, even though it was accidental, uh, it wasn't intentional in that way, in that manner, in, in front of people, that was not Okay. And in many instances like that make you want to not reveal your sin, not want to confess your sin, not want to expose your sin to people because you don't know how they're going to react. You don't know how they're going to treat you. You don't know what consequences people are going to put on you because sometimes you say, hey, I'm so sorry I did this and they just lecture you. And you think, I know what's wrong, I'm telling you. People don't know how to react to sin when we confess sin. And then there are some things that aren't trivial, that, that, are, that are deep, that are dark. Some things that we've done that have really hurt people. And there was a time when I was uh, confronted by my parents about something that I did. And I was, I was older, I was in college, and, and I was so ashamed. I, was, I, I couldn't even look at them. I was just sobbing, not looking at them because I was ashamed. I, I didn't feel like I could approach them and, 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 and have that relationship. It was severed and it, it was tough. And so we have this problem, this, this, this sin problem, and not just sin itself, but what do we do with it when we recognize it? What about when we don't recognize it? What about in other people? What about with other people with our sin? How, how do we deal with this thing? 
And I love the way that the Bible speaks, the way that it is so relevant to our lives. And Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians talks about this. And if you remember, we've been in the book of 2 Corinthians for a while. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he had deep roots with, but had a a relationship with him that was a little bit tumultuous. Uh, It was a a little bit volatile. There was a lot of miscommunication going on, people being frustrated and getting hurt and saying things and doing things. And Paul had to write a letter, which was 1 Corinthians, to correct some things they were doing. And he sent Timothy, and then he sent Titus, and then he himself had to go over and talk to them. And then he had to write a letter that was a severe letter. He calls it a severe letter. It It was difficult to hear. And then Paul is kind of waiting for the response. He's in Ephesus. He goes up to Troas. And while he's in Troas, life is very difficult. We don't know exactly what went on in Troas, but Paul said he despaired of life itself. It was so awful what was going on that Paul, who went through all kinds of stuff, was despairing even of life itself. It was tough. And he was looking forward to meeting Titus, who he had sent the severe letter with. He wanted to know what was going on in Corinth, how they would react, how they would respond, how that would affect their relationship. And he didn't find Titus. So he goes over to Macedonia. And when he's in Macedonia, Titus arrives and brings him news of what happened. And Paul kind of explains what goes on here in 2 Corinthians. Why don't you turn there? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I mean, sorry, chapter uh, 7. Now, the context of this you got to remember where we've been. Paul's looking through the lens of grace, right? the lens of God's grace at people. And Paul talks about the gospel, the good news, this new covenant, this amazing covenant where God is not counting humanity's sins against them. It's brilliant that, that God isn't counting our sins against us. And then we now are ambassadors of this good news. We are carriers of this message, of this mission this is what we're doing. We, get, we have the greatest news ever to tell the world and we are called to just do that. God says, hey, I'm giving you the best news ever. Now carry it. Now tell it to people. Demonstrate it to people. Show people. We are ambassadors for Christ. And then Paul says, don't receive the grace of God in vain. We're ambassadors for Christ and there's two aspects in, in which you can receive the grace of God in vain. And the first one is this idea that, yes, we have been reconciled to Christ. You know, we who are followers of Jesus, are, you know, the church, we, we've been reconciled, but we need to be continually reconciled. It's the idea of justification and then sanctification, that we are being made like Christ. We have this new identity, this great identity. We are righteous, we are holy, we're set apart, we're sons and daughters of the King, but we're learning to live into that. And God is bringing to completion the work that he started, but he invites us to participate in that. And Paul says, continually be reconciled to God. This is the idea of sanctification. And when we don't participate in that with God, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. But there's a second aspect of this. That we are called to partner with God in ministry. Not to be his slaves in ministry, which is crazy because that's what it should be, right? I mean, we are not equal to God. We're not God's. We're humans, we're creations, we're creatures. And yet God says, partner with me. Not because he needs us, but because he loves us. And, and Paul says, we're called a partner, but when we don't, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. He's given us this great new mission, this great purpose, but when we don't, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. 
And then Paul lines out two things, two areas that will cause us or, or will influence us to receive the grace of God in vain in those two ways. And the first one is our own affections. Now, we have this old self, this flesh, these desires from our old self before we were uh, reborn into Christ. And those desires, our own fleshly desires, will lead us astray. Paul said to the Corinthians, I'm not, I'm not closing you in. I am not restricting you. You're restricted in your own affections. See, Jesus wants you to have this abundant free life. But when you indulge in sin, when you indulge in your desires, you're hemming yourself in. You're closing yourself in. You are closed in by yourself, not by us, by your own sin, by your own affections. So he says, flee, right? Open your heart to the grace of God. Widen your hearts to his way, his truth. And then there's a second way. And he said that we talked about this last week. He said, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And what he's saying here is that when we are in relationship with people, what they do affects us. And the closer relationship we have to a person, the more it affects us. The more emotionally connected you are, the more what they do will affect what you do. And so Paul says, and he uses this analogy that we unpacked last week, that, that, that you're in this yoke, which is big, this big wooden thing that you'd put on two oxen so that they could plow. And he says, you're headed one way. You're headed towards Jesus. Your eyes are fixed on Christ. Your heart is oriented to God. You're sowing to the Spirit. But I don't want you to be so emotionally connected to someone who's headed the other way, who's headed in a different direction, because that's going to be bad for you and it's going to be bad for them. So, in your own affections, your own fleshly desires, you're gonna, it's going to tempt you to receive the grace of God in vain. And then if you're partnering so closely emotionally with someone who's going the other direction, not towards Christ, that will also hinder you in your being continually reconciled to God and you're partnering with him effectively for ministry. So we've got this, these two things going on. We've got this abundant grace, this, this, this good news, this gospel that says, enter into God's family, no strings attached. Unbelievable. And yet, there's this sin. Come into the family of God, no strings attached, and yet sin is going to enslave you. It's going to cause you to receive the grace of God in vain in your continual reconciliation, in your continual sanctification, uh, in the process that God is bringing you along that he will complete, and also in your partnering with God in ministry. So what do we do about sin? And here's what he says, chapter 7, verse 2. He says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Paul begins in the place that we've got to begin. When there is sin within relationship with someone else, it's so important to speak to the heart first, to engage in the relationship first to earn the right to speak, and then to remind people that you're on their side. I'm on your team. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Everything that I'm going to say to you is for your good so that you can live in freedom, so you can have abundance. I'm on your team. The things I'm saying are for your good. It's not that I'm against you. And Paul just reminds them of that. 
because their relationship, you know, had some difficulty. And even though, as we'll find out in a bit, they reacted well to his letter, there were still some people there that were trying to tempt them to turn away from Paul and his leadership. They were, they, were, they were saying, hey, Paul's out of his mind, he's crazy, don't listen to him, and they were starting to turn. And so Paul wants to remind them, hey, no, 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 I'm on your team. I'm for you. Everything that I'm saying and doing, it's for your good. And now I just want to demonstrate for you how much I love you, how much I care about you, how emotionally connected I am to you. Verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting uh, without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul said, hey, in Troas, awful, went to Macedonia. It was still rough. I was still dealing with such great difficulty and stress and worry, but God comforted me. And you know how he comforted me? You know how God made me feel better? It was when Titus came and I heard about you and your love for me. When I was reminded of that, even though things were terrible, they were rough, they were difficult, I was struggling, that made my heart glad. That's how much I care about you. When I hear about your good, even though I'm struggling, I'm filled with joy. I care about you. I love you. And he says this. He says, uh, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. If this sounds a little bit confusing, you're in good company. I was confused for a while. Um, Paul is saying, hey, I, I wrote a letter. I knew it was going to be difficult for you to hear. I knew it was going to be difficult for you to receive because it was a severe level letter. It said some harsh things that you needed to hear so that you might live in more freedom. It, it said you need to deal with the sin that's going on in, in, your, in your congregation, in your group, in your family. And he said, when I sent it, basically he's a little worried about how they're going to react. And then when he hears that they were grieved, he was like, oh, ugh, I didn't want that. I didn't want them to be grieved. I didn't want them to be saddened by my letter. I didn't want them to think that I don't love them, that I don't care about them, that I'm not for them. So when I heard that it grieved you at first, I regretted the, the grief part. I didn't want you to grieve. However, he says, Titus followed up and said, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, they were grieved, but they were grieved into repentance. And that repentance produced such great goodness and godliness and restoration. And it reminded them of their heart, your heart for them and their heart for you. And Paul says, okay, so yeah, I didn't want you to be sad, but I'm, I don't regret it because that sadness led to something beautiful. It led to freedom. It led to reconciliation. This was good. So I don't regret it. Because what I want for you more than anything is your good, your freedom, your experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came, lived, and died for us to have. And he says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Let's read that again. This, it, this is too good. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's two kinds of grief. 
And Paul's going to talk about them both, but there's godly grief and there's worldly grief. And godly grief is a grief that the Spirit in you convicts your heart about and it leads you to repent. And this repentance leads you to salvation without regrets. Now, the word salvation in this context could be confusing because when we typically think about salvation, we think about our justification uh, by Jesus on the cross, right? That, that we, because of what he did, are now already justified. But salvation can be used in three senses in the scriptures. It's used in the past, yes, we're justified. It's also used in the present, we are being sanctified, we are being saved, and then future, glorification. We will be glorified, we will be saved. Jesus will return and he will make all things right. He's not gonna forget us, right? So we were saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And so here Paul is mainly referring to the, the second one, the, the, the being saved, the current salvation, because he's talking to believers. He's talking to people who have already been justified by the work, the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so he's saying this, when you grieve in a godly way, in a God-honoring way, in a way that God would put forth, it produces in you a repentance that leads to your continual reconciliation to Christ your participation in the sanctification process, your, your continual salvation, and a life, a salvation with no regrets. You ever had regrets? You ever been grieved by something that you did in such a way that you regretted it and that, that, that it, it really weighed on you so deeply? Paul said godly grief doesn't do that. That's worldly grief. He says, whereas worldly grief produces death, you've probably experienced that. Shame, guilt, sin in your life that, is, that, that becomes your identity, who you are, that you are a failure, you are a sinner, you are rejected, you can never be reconciled. The shame that you, you don't want to approach a holy, righteous God because he dwells in unapproachable light and yet, you know, he, he hates evil and, 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 and he's against evil. And then when you realize that that's in you, what do you do? And, and the enemy loves to produce worldly grief in us, to strip us of our joy, to remind us of our sin. And Paul says this, for we see, looking at, at their lives and the godly grief, he says, for we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Godly grief produces earnestness in us against sin and for others' good, right? It produces earnestness in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter so that although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. Paul says, look at what the godly grief did. That's how you know it's godly grief because of what it produced in your life. It produced this repentance that led to salvation without regrets. It produced earnestness. It produced eagerness. It produced indignation against sin. It produced godly fear. It produced what you needed to do to rid out the sin in your midst. It produced all these beautiful things that are leading you into freedom, into life abundant. 
It was godly grief. That's good. That's why I'm not saddened. That's why I don't regret it. Because look what it did. Look at this godly grief and how it produced in you this beauty. Because I want to remind you about why I wrote the letter. It wasn't to speak directly to the person who committed sin. But it also wasn't to speak directly to the people who'd been hurt by the sin that person committed. He said, I wrote it so that you might be reminded of your earnestness for us and and really their earnestness for Jesus, right? Because Jesus placed Paul in an authority over them and so their earnestness for him is really earnestness uh, to Jesus through Paul's leadership. Paul's like, I wrote for the gospel, for your freedom, for the freedom the person did the wrong, for you to be reminded of your earnestness, for, you, for us to be reconciled into relationship. It was gospel-centric. That's why I did this. So therefore, I'm comforted. And Paul alludes to this in, in, in the worldly grief, but we've got to remember there's an enemy out there. He hates you. And Satan works in two major ways with your sin. And the first one is he just wants you to ignore it. He wants you to think it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. Or or that, you know, it's not even really sin. Your sin isn't that bad. Maybe other people's is, but yours isn't. Yours is fine. Because when you continue to live in sin, you become a slave to sin. You become enslaved in prison to sin to the point where you can no longer make the right decision. You become an addict to sin. And Satan wants you to be in that because he knows that that will destroy your life. He knows that that will will, will lead you to to a life of emptiness, a, a life where you have no fulfillment, a life where you have no peace, no joy. He wants you to be enslaved to that and not even know it. And the second thing he will do is he'll point out your sin. He'll point at you in your sin. You failure, you reject, you sinner, you lustful person, you prideful person, you liar, you murderer, you thief. And he will accuse you night and day before the Father and say you have no place with him. You cannot be reconciled. You are filthy and God is holy. You'll never be able to be in relationship with him. And he accuses you over and over and over We've got to remember there is an enemy at work. And he's either trying to get us to ignore it or trying to make us feel so ashamed and so guilty and so unable to approach God with our sin. And there's two guys that I think really embody this that we see in Scripture. If you'll remember back to uh, Easter, and you've got Jesus who's been with his disciples for for three years. He's been pouring his heart into these guys for three years. And one of the guys that he chose was Judas. One of the guys he chose to be his disciple. One of the guys that he spent time with, that he poured into, that he cared about, Judas. But Judas didn't like the way that Jesus was doing things. He didn't like the way that he was going to be Messiah. He wanted him to do it differently. And he finally got fed up with it. He went to the priests who, knew, who he knew were trying to find a way to kill him, trying to find a way to arrest him. But they didn't want to do it in public because they were afraid of the people. So Judas said, hey, I know where he'll be in private. I know where he'll be at night. I'll show you. I'll lead you to him. And so he did. He came with a band of soldiers. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he, he pointed Jesus out. He betrayed him unto death. 
And Satan began to work in accusing Judas. And you see it in the way that he reacts. He realizes that what he did was awful, was wrong, was terrible. But you see it become his identity. That he is the betrayer of the Messiah. That he is unworthy. He is unacceptable. That he'll never be acceptable. He was so ashamed, so guilt-ridden, so struck with the accusations on himself that he ended his own life. He couldn't take it anymore. Ashamed, guilty. And then there's Peter. One of Jesus' top disciples, the guy that Jesus was really grooming to kind of take over, to lead the church when he left, Peter. Peter, who at times was so great, you know, when he walked out on the water. And that's amazing that he was willing to walk on the water to Jesus, but then he sinks, right? And that's probably not why Jesus gives him the nickname Rock, but it might be. You know what I'm saying? Right? Peter goes to walk in the water and then he starts sinking because he loses his faith. And then there's this time where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forth and he says, hey, you're the son of God. And Jesus says, yeah, that, had, that was revealed to you by the Father. And then about five minutes later, he's saying, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Right? Peter. But yeah, he was there with Jesus for three years. He loved Jesus so passionately that when Jesus said, all of you are going to run away from me, Peter said, not me. It will never happen. I will never run for you. I will never deny you. I will stick by your side forever. And Jesus said, actually, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And when you look at the denial, you can see why Peter was so distraught about it. And he goes into the courtyard where Jesus, he's been arrested. And there, there's some legit fear there because if Jesus is condemned as, as a, you know, a quote-unquote Messiah figure who's leading people against Rome and Peter was one of his closest followers, he could be imp- implemented in that and, and could also be killed. So there's some fear there. But you see the, the person that he first denies Jesus to. It's a woman. And, and that, that's... Women aren't less, but in that day and age, women were viewed as, as subordinate to men. So, so this is a person who in that society, in that system, is subordinate to Peter. She's under Peter. She's not, she's not above him, and then she's a servant. So she's not even his equal in class. She's a servant, and she's a servant girl. And yet Peter is so afraid, so concerned about himself, that he denies knowing Jesus to even her. And after he denies Jesus the third time, Jesus looks at him in the eyes. Apparently he's in some situation where he can see Jesus and, and he turns and he sees him. And Peter's sin is overwhelming. He hears the rooster crow and he remembers what Jesus said. And he runs off and he weeps bitterly. He grieves his sin. But we can see in the results that it was a godly grief because it led to his repentance and his restoration it led to Jesus appearing to Peter. It led, led to him along uh, the lake when, when Jesus is, is with Peter, Jesus restoring him three times because he denied him three times, reminding Peter of his love for him, even though he's asking Peter, hey, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I do. Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you feed my sheep. Yeah, Peter, get back in there. I'm the shepherd. These are my sheep, and I want you to shepherd them under me, even though you denied me. Sin is this 
this thing that the enemy wants to hide and he wants to expose in your identity. He wants to blame you with, accuse you with. He wants to draw you away from God with it. Sin will corrupt us. It will destroy us in our lives and we've got to deal with it. We've got to confront it because sin is dark. Sin is ugly. Sin is wicked and it will destroy. We've got to confront sin. But here's the difficulty. When I was a kid and I would do something really cool, like I learned to ride my bike. Uh, I, had a, I had a babysitter that taught me how to ride my bike and I was so excited. And I ran to my dad and I was like, Dad, I learned to ride my bike. I learned to ride, I, I, can't, I can't wait to show you. I learned to ride my bike, Dad. Because I knew that he'd be so excited. He was, he was so excited. He gave me the biggest hug. It was so great. But I remember when I would disobey my dad that I was afraid. I was ashamed. I didn't want to see him. I didn't want to approach him. I didn't want to be near him because I was afraid of what he might think of what he might do, of how that would affect our relationship. So I would hide it. And multiply that by a thousand when you think about the adult sins that we commit. The, the darkness in each of our hearts. I imagine there are some things that you've done in your life that, that you don't want to tell anybody about because you're so ashamed. And not just tell anyone, but what about a holy, righteous God who dwells in unapproachable light? I want to read you this passage. Hebrews chapter 4. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Peter says, yeah, we've, God's holy, dwells in unapproachable light. But the writer of Hebrews says this, we have a high priest, someone who goes between us and the Father, Jesus. And he says this about him, he says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This high priest, this person that we go to who goes between us and the Father, he gets it. He knows. He can understand. He can relate. He walked a human life for 30 years. He experienced what we experienced. He was tempted like we experienced. We were tempted. And he can say the two most powerful words in the English language, me too. I've been there. I get it. The writer of Hebrews says he's not unable to sympathize. He can. He gets it. And then, and then this. He says, let us then with confidence draw near. Not in shame, not in guilt, not in fear, not in worry, not with our heads down, not dejected. But he said, let us then draw near with confidence. Why? Because sin is not who we are anymore. Our sin has been paid for on the cross we have, we have been made the righteousness of God by the blood of Jesus. And so we can approach God's throne confidently because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin, yeah, it left a crimson stain, but he has washed me white as snow. I can approach God with confidence. And then get this, this is so beautiful. Let us draw near to the throne of 
grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. It's not a throne of judgment that we're approaching, a throne of condemnation that we're approaching. It's the throne of God's grace. That when we do good, when we do right, when we follow the lead in the Spirit, we run to God with arms open. God, you look, God, you see what I did? God, I love you. And his arms are wide open, but when we have sinned, when we failed, when we have rejected him, we can run to God with confidence and say, God, I need you. Because godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regrets. We can run to God when things are going well, and we can run to God when we have rejected him. That is the extravagant love of the Father for us. There's a psalm, Psalm 32, and it is just, it's just too beautiful. David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He goes on, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. David was saying, when I concealed my sin, when I hid my sin, when I didn't confess my sin, it weighed on me. Like I know your sin is weighing on you. And he said, but I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is what we have. A God who will forgive the iniquity of our sin. Who's waiting for us with arms wide open. David says this, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. You haven't rejected me. You are not judging me. You are not condemning me. You are not separating me. No, you are my hiding place. When I'm good, when I'm bad, you're my hiding place. You're my refuge. You're the place that I run to because you are a throne of grace with a high priest who can relate Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love of God surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is for us. I don't know what's lurking inside your heart. I don't know where you've failed, where you've fallen, where you've given in to temptation, where you've been complicit. I don't know how you've hurt people. But I know that the depth of your sin cannot compete with the depth of God's grace. That your sin may be deep, but God's grace is deeper still. That his arms are open wide to you no matter when you do well or when you sin. That you can confidently approach the throne of God because his throne is a throne of grace. Because you in Christ are the righteousness of God. Sin no longer defines you. Sin no longer enslaves you because you have been set free. As the band comes back up and they begin to lead us in singing praise to God, I want you to take a moment. I want you to close your eyes and ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you sin. Sin that hasn't been confessed. 
Ask him to reveal to you the deep sins, the dark sins, the things that you are ashamed of, maybe the things that you've forgotten about because you've buried him so deep inside. Ask him to remind you. And then with confidence, approach the throne of grace. Confess your sin. Allow the Spirit to grieve you for your sin and lead you to a repentance that produces a salvation without regret. We have a life without regret offered to us. We have a Father, a loving Father with His arms open wide to you. Approach His throne of grace and experience life abundantly. Father God, we need you. We can't do this on our own. It's too much. It's too hard. The weight of sin is too much. It's too heavy. God, our shame is too big. Our guilt is too much to carry. It's too hard. So I pray that your spirit would lead us gently into your presence, into your throne, that we would know that it's grace that awaits us. Not condemnation, not shame, not accusation, but, but, but freedom and life. God, help us to approach your throne with confidence, knowing that we, our identity, is the righteousness of Jesus. Reveal to us our sin, God, so that we might confess and be continually reconciled to you and have a salvation without regrets. We ask these things in truly the most beautiful name ever uttered, Jesus.